Good morning and welcome to Rising. We've got a slightly above average show today, Robbie, and part of that is because I forgot my glasses today, so <laughs> I'm going to be sort of flying half blind with the teleprompter. So We're going to all enjoy watching you squint <laughs> try to read uh, the side teleprompter. This should be, should be a very enjoyable show for me and maybe for you, not <laughs> yes, for Ryan. I think so. But President Biden is on his way to Brussels to meet with Western leaders on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. His meetings began, begin tomorrow, where he's expected to cast more sanctions on Russia and seek more aid for Ukraine. But today, Brianna Joy Gray will join us to discuss whether it's time to nationalize oil. Interesting, interesting. Let's, let's do that. Later, Shauna Thomas and Pamela Denise Long will be here to break down how Congress is cashing in on the Ukraine crisis. But first, Los Angeles saw gas prices rise to a whopping $6 a gallon on average. The first U.S. city to do so as the cost of oil and inflation continues to surge. According to CNBC, oil prices are up this week over an estimated drop in uh, U.S. crude inventories. That I can't read. Signaling a rise in demand <laughs> while talks of a fresh oil embargo on Russia fueled supply worries. So one oil market analyst told CNBC we could expect to see continued high volatility through the rest of the week and especially around the NATO summit. They added that there may be some relief if the EU doesn't ban Russian oil imports. Hmm. Meanwhile, legislation is being floated to help Americans at the pump. Some proposals include a stimulus check, while others would tax oil companies that would in turn provide financial assistance to consumers struggling to pay the price. ExxonMobil has made, it its, largest, has made its largest profits in seven years, raking in a whopping $23 billion in 2021. And as oil prices rise, they're projected to make nearly $38 billion this year. Hmm. Maybe we don't need to subsidize these companies would be my I'm, I'm for be my key I'm, I'm for stripping away. their subsidies absolutely and going after their their windfall profits yeah. you know as it, it's it's really cute how the free market works here isn't it when when oil a barrel rises yeah. then gas prices rise when oil per barrel drops gas prices either stay flat or keep rising and they say oh well it takes us a while right. to incorporate these price changes into our inventory but except when oil prices rise they're out there changing that number immediately, right. up, upwards. Well, but it's it not doesn't exa- come back downwards because that they, they feel like they can. Get, they're going to get away with that as long as they possibly can. It's not exactly the free market at work because cartel, the, right? The commodities <laughs> prices are set by a government collection of a bunch right. of governments, right? But the levers up and down right. operate differently. Yeah, and and we and we saw saw that over the last several weeks, where when it goes up, the gas the gas companies, like the actual gas stations, like they jack up prices immediately. You know, they, 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 they watch that spot price move. And when, it, when it's up, they go up. When it comes down, they're like, eh, let's see what happens next. Yeah. I think we'll, think we'll let, let this no, but And then it comes back up. Like, oh, let's go up again. So it's like a ratchet effect upwards. But seriously, we should stop subsidizing it. And then maybe other energy sources of energy would be able to compete more easily instead instead of just subsidizing everything instead of the government trying to pick winners and losers and decide okay we're going to subsidize this this much and this this much and this this much just let them they, if they all could just openly compete maybe uh, maybe some of the alternative energy sources you prefer that are better for our planet they would perform better and does withdrawing subsidies also include recalling the naval fleets that are protecting all the oil shipping routes yeah, oh, naval fleets. We that. should sell those ships too to sell to, to, pri- to pirates. Really, sell them to pirates. <laughs> in my uh, ideal world. Basically, the only 
gas we'd have was, was whatever we could frack out of Pennsylvania. That's at right. That point. That's right. Frack, yeah. baby, frack. Yeah, and then and then yeah, right. Then people are going to start exploring renewables and push toward independence. Fine, fine by me. Yeah. Fine but by in, me. But in the meantime, the the kind of the populist reaction, and uh, uh, Lucas Kuntz put it really well, is cap profits at five percent. I think mm-hmm. you know it, the details of that would need to be worked out. But in other words. A windfall profits tax, like you know, that's it's kind of a knee-jerk populist reaction, but oftentimes that's the thing to do in a moment like this. Yeah. Like and just go, just go get like, Exxon. What do they make? Twenty-one billion or thirty-eight billion or whatever obscene amount of money. Whatever that. You profit. couldn't read it when it was on the right. screen, so you have no <laughs> a idea. Lot. It was a lot of money. Go tax it. Mm-hmm. Go get it. Yeah, I'd want to know what an economist says about that. What, what would they, what would they we, say is not good about that? You, you don't need to ask an economist <laughs> on questions that are actually about political power. Mm-hmm. And so if you started even just talking about this, all of a sudden... You spook them into... You'd spook them and you'd see the gas stations because they, they would just magically get the message, oh, okay, fine, we're, we're pulling our prices down. Actually, my, my radar's on, on, that, on a similar phenomenon of the credit rating agencies... All of a sudden, they're like, okay, fine, medical debt, we're going to back off of medical debt just because they were under a lot of pressure from the CFPB. Yeah, that, it does work that way. Yeah. It does work. Sometimes uh, regulators just got to threaten, maybe right. we're going to take a closer look at yeah, this. We're, well, we're not doing that. Why yeah. would you look at that? Yeah. You're not doing it now. Well, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said the Fed will continue to hike interest rates until inflation is under control even if that means increasing rates quicker than anticipated, though he noted that he still expects inflation to run high through the rest of the year. This means you could see some big rate increases for credit cards, mortgages, and other loans. Which is, you know... And higher unemployment if, right. if it works as it's intended. The problem here is that inflation is being driven by oil prices mm-hmm. and also by other commodities that are spiking particularly right now as a result of the war. So, you know, what, what are the two of the things that underlie, you know, most of what we consume? Oil and wheat and other, other right. you know, food commodities like that. I mean, there's some debate over the sources of the inflation, too. I mean, the inflation was getting bad before the war started. Uh, right, but that was from money, largely from energy and also right. from the supply chain being broken at a time when the economy was opening back up. And people were, and also people had shifted from you know going out to just buying stuff. Right. And so there was more pressure on the supply chain. The supply chains couldn't handle it. And the the point of all of that is to say that raising interest rates doesn't actually do anything about any of those things, except it will take money out of some people's pockets. And so there will be slightly less purchasing power. People will be poorer, and as a result, they'll be buying fewer things, which could help the supply chain get moving a tiny bit, right. but that's and, only and one piece In theory, of it. drive the price down right. of those things. Right, of that, yeah. but that's just, one little, that's just one little piece of it. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. But and, I, and, the, and the upshot is like lots, lots of pain and suffering among people who are going to have less money. Yeah. Well, we got to get the Ukraine situation worked out. It, it's, I mean, this is Biden to have any hope of being reelected. Uh, it's, it's too late. There's already the bloodbath in, in the congressional right. midterms yeah. that that cannot be salvaged. But, you know, Biden, to have any shot of a second term, needs to he needs to fix the economy. He, we need gas prices under control. We need things to feel normal again, the way he promised right. that that's how we were going to feel. Normality again. 
or else he's yeah. done, or else he has no chance. He would lose to Trump. And, and that is a damning statement. And after, after these wheat price spikes start filtering through the global yeah. economy, I think you're going to see uh, riots and uprisings all across the global south. Even, and could even creep into places like Italy and, and Greece as well. That, you know, that's what triggered the Arab Spring, high, bre high bread prices, and then it evolved into calls for human rights and, mm -hmm. and freedom and anti-corruption. I think you could see that you're going to see that all over the place, uh, and and we're only we're only now beginning to see it, which is another reason. Especially to as end COVID this. recedes, you know. Just remember, we had that the summer of 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 protests following George Floyd mm -hmm. here in in America at a at a time where there was where it seemed like maybe it was okay to go outside and do things again. I mean, it was always okay to go outside right. and do things, but. We thought maybe the pandemic was receding, or people were in the mood for it to recede, and then all that kind of stuff happened, and then it was actually not the end of the pandemic by any stretch of the imagination. But now it really is probably the end of the pandemic. Right. People are angrier today. Even now, yes. people were furious in 2010, 2011 because of the wake of the financial crisis. Right. But I think they're even angrier today because of the lack of recovery, plus then two years of COVID. Mm -hmm. Plus the yawning. Domestically, the people are clearly angrier. Right. I don't I mean know about the, the places world. where you're yeah. talking about, but maybe. We'll, we're going to find out. <laughs> we're certainly going to find out. But immediately, we're going to find out what's on our radars, because that's up next. Ryan, what's on your radar? Well, under our current system, if you get hit with a medical bill that you don't pay at the full sticker price within six months, even if you end up paying it or otherwise resolving the claim, it can sit on your credit report for up to seven years. That type of debt accounts for tens of billions of dollars worth that hangs like a stone around the neck of anybody who needs credit for a car, a house, an apartment, a credit card, whatever. It raises your cost of living and you get nothing but grief in return. The CFPB says that as much as $88 billion in medical bills stain at least 43 million credit cards. Now, starting in July, credit reporting firms are going to strip all of that type of debt off of people's credit reports, thanks to pressure from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and its head, Rohit Chopra, who's become the bane of, of klepto firms, big and small, dating back to his time as their nemesis on the Federal Trade Commission. The companies are also going to remove medical debt of less than at least $500, which is a ton of it, because people often get bills they didn't expect, they don't pay them or they don't pay them right away, and then it lives on your credit rating forever. New debts won't be added to credit reports unless they're outstanding for at least a year, and any debts that were paid by insurance companies have to be removed too. Now, it's pathetic that this qualifies as a victory because they never should have been doing any of this to begin with. And frankly, the concept of medical debt itself, unless it's medical debt for like plastic surgery or something, is an obscene concept. In 2015, after credit reporting companies were sued by a slew of attorneys general, they made some modest reforms, like taking parking tickets and gym memberships off of credit reports. The idea here is to take away a key weapon wielded by scammers like gyms, which offer low introductory rates and then sneak you into a high-priced plan, make it impossible to cancel, and then force you to pay by threatening to ruin your credit. And lots of people decide it's worth paying that ransom because if they don't, they'll pay more because of a bad credit score. Now, for years, regulators have warned credit reporting companies not to empower these scam artists by taking everything they send with no questions asked. But they only buckled after getting sued by the AGs 
and now with Rohit Chopra in their face. These concessions will be helpful to millions of people, and a win is a win. But if you ask me, Chopra should press on and let them know this isn't enough. Let them pay the ransom this time. Besides, if they think the CFPB will back off after a concession, that'll make them bolder when it comes to actually implementing these promises. Because right now, that's all they are, is promises. Now, it's not actually clear medical debt below a very large threshold should even be on a credit report, because whether you have some smallish medical debt really has nothing to do with whether you're likely to pay your bills or not. All it means is that you went to a hospital or some other provider and their intricately designed billing system figured out how to nail you. The other reason to keep pressing forward is that credit reporting companies in general need a kick in the teeth. Right now, the CFPB is investigating Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion for how they handle consumer disputes and the roadblocks roadblocks that the company puts in front of people who are trying to challenge bogus debts that have been slapped on their report. Aside from medical debt, one of the other big things the CFPB has been pushing on is overdraft fees, which are a plague upon humanity. Banks have developed sophisticated algorithms that will move charges around so that they can maximize the number of times that they can hit you with NSF fees. Under pressure from the CFPB, a lot of banks have been voluntarily announcing that they're doing away with them. That's great. But I hope the CFPB doesn't take the boot off their necks because those fees will come right back if the CFPB gets taken over again by a political operative who doesn't want it to exist, like happened when Trump let Mick Mulvaney try to destroy it. Which, by the way, is a curious way to show how populist you are by doing the bidding of con artists on Wall Street. So I think, Robbie, I'm curious where you come down on this because it's an interesting question for a libertarian because the... These are private companies, these credit rating agencies, yet they have pretty much like monopolistic dictatorial power over you. So at what point, you know, does the public have have to start pushing back against them? Yeah. And the 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 system for paying for medical bills is so we're, it's not a right. truly private not system. Remotely, it's not a truly public yeah. system. It's very confusing. I mean, the insurance system is so confusing. And I, I know exactly the problem you're talking about. Uh, I know people have been, who've been impacted by this. Sometimes it, it's, it can happen to people who, ha- who have financial resources right. and are perfectly capable of paying off these bills but don't know that they were charged. Mm-hmm. Maybe, it's, maybe you get mailed a bill to the last apartment you lived in. Maybe mm-hmm. it, you, it was an email, you missed it. Maybe it, because it, it comes months later, and you're like, what was this? Didn't I pay that there? Isn't it a copay? What am I supposed to do? I thought I paid this at the office. Right, like, because, and nobody, this is a broader this is, problem. This is not a bill. Exactly. This this is a a huge problem with medical services is that nobody knows what they're paying for. There's no market in it. There's no, you know, you might, you might change what you're, it's not like a service you know what you're paying for. Like, oh yeah, I'll order this. I'll get this. I don't need that. And that sounds too steep right now. I don't want to do that. That just doesn't happen. You just do it. And then later you you get a bill and you're like, okay, wait, what, what do I have to pay? Doesn't insurance pay this? Oh, they aren't paying this, but I got to pay this. It's the worst system Ever, you could not make a worse system, like a like a like a truly socialist system, which I would oppose, pro- would probably be more like internally right. consistent than this yes. system, at least. So, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I think it, I think it's a problem, and and, and possibly, while I, I don't love the idea of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in general, uh, this is probably a more legitimate use of their time yeah. than most things because it's just a t- it's a truly terrible system. And I, th- I think the company's willingness to just voluntarily take this stuff off shows that it actually isn't 
defensible. S- suggest, <laughs> right. right, because their job is to tell banks and other lenders yeah. who's credit worthy and who's not. So if they really thought that taking medical debt off of people's credit scores was going to undermine their ability to deliver an accurate product to these lenders, they would fight and say, no, no, we need this information because this tells us who's going to pay. But there has been a lot of research, uh, public research, that shows that there's actually not a whole lot of connection between who has medical debt and who's creditworthy. And clearly their own internal research shows that, so, shows that yeah, we can, we can lose this, which then shows they knew they didn't need it, but, the, but it was just easier for them to just slap it on there. And so they're like, well, unless, unless we're getting fierce pressure. Uh, and, I, and I think this, you know, and I hope that a similar dynamic plays out on insufficient funds fees. Mm-hmm. Those are the worst. Those are absolutely the worst. It's like, let's say you've got like- This 50, is when you take out too much money from your bank account? Yeah, you got $50 in your account. Yeah. And you go to, you know, during the day you, you spend $5 at Starbucks, uh, and then you spend, you know, $4 on a metro ticket, and then you spend $50 on something else. What they do is they, they figure out a way to take the 50 first, even if it was last, move that, move that in. So now they got you down there, and then they slap you for the coffee and the other thing that you spent. So it turns out being a $35 coffee, you know, a $35 sandwich, plus then. And so then at the end of the day, you're like, you're out. A $35 coffee, that's like Starbucks price. <laughs> yeah, in a couple months, <laughs> probably. Yeah, it's not good. I, I worry about how insurance systems, for especially for medical, that's true of, for education, for higher ed, disguise the price, um, encourage uh, certain decision makers to raise the price because it's so disguised right. to the consumer. And it's right. a big problem. Surprise billing. Yeah. Yeah. Figuring that out. You know, looking forward to what's on your radar up next. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson are underway. Yesterday, the would-be justice was grilled by Republican and Democratic members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. We've already discussed some of those questions, but I wanted to focus on one particular line of criticism Brown-Jackson received, that she is an adherent of critical race theory. Indeed, tying Brown-Jackson to critical race theory appears to be a major Republican strategy for opposing her nomination. The GOP tweeted this gif yesterday. The Libertarian Party Twitter account made fun of this line of attack, responding that the GOP was essentially claiming that everything I don't like is CRT. Certainly feels that they're claiming that at various times. But before we go any further, let me refresh your minds about what critical race theory actually is. So CRT is an academic tradition and approach which posits that racism is the central framework for understanding the modern world. It is relevant to instruction in the law because the theory's originators, people people like Kimberly Crenshaw, a law professor at Columbia and UCLA, were lawyers and legal educators, and they were particularly focused on how racism undergirds U.S. law. So thus, it would not be surprising, actually, if CRT was an important part of Brown-Jackson's training and philosophy. In fact, I would have expected her to have encountered it. But when asked about CRT by Democratic Senator Chris Coons, she said this. In your nine years on the bench and more than 570 decisions, have you ever used, employed, relied upon critical race theory to determine the outcome of any case or to impose any sentence or as a, as a framework for your decision-making? No, Senator. Um, would you just explain to us briefly what sort of factors you do, in fact, consider in your analysis? 
So that was a pretty definitive answer, no. Republican Senator Ted Cruz followed up. Let's watch that. What does critical race theory mean? What is it? Senator, my understanding is that critical race theory is, um, it is an academic theory that is about the ways in which uh, race interacts with um, various institutions. It doesn't come up in my work as a judge. It's never something that I've uh, studied or relied on, and it wouldn't be something that I would rely on if I was on the Supreme Court. Cruz didn't quite believe what he was hearing, and so he kept hammering her. Do you think that's an accurate way of viewing society and the world we live in? Senator, I don't think so, um, but I've never studied critical race theory, and I've never used it. It doesn't come up in the work that I do as a judge. So, so with respect, I, I find that a curious statement uh, because um, you gave a speech in April of 2015 uh, at the University of Chicago in which you described the job you do as a judge. And you said sentencing is just plain interesting because it melds together myriad types of law, criminal law, and of course constitutional law, critical race theory. So you described in a speech to a law school what you were doing as critical race theory. Uh, and so I guess I would ask, what, what did you mean by that when you gave that speech? With respect, Senator, um, the quote that you are mentioning there um, was about sentencing policy. It was not about sentencing um, I was talking about the policy uh, determinations of bodies like the Sentencing Commission when they look at a laundry list of various academic subjects. So Brown Jackson's response didn't really explain why, if she was never influenced by or interested in CRT, or indeed, or indeed barely even knew what it was, well, why she had cited it in that instance. By the way, it's been established that Brown Jackson was familiar with and had praised Derek Bell, an American lawyer and activist who is known primarily for his contributions to critical race theory. She gave a speech citing him at the University of Michigan Law School's MLK Day lecture. With respect to Brown Jackson, even giving her the benefit of the doubt, I think it's flatly unbelievable that CRT has played no role whatsoever in her judicial decision making. She clearly knows what it is and has drawn some inspiration from it. Now, that doesn't mean the concept completely dominates her thinking or she's indistinguishable from one of the more obnoxious anti-racist educators like Ibram X. Kendi or Robin DiAngelo, but Supreme Court nominees should tell the truth about where they're getting their ideas. So what did you, what did you make of this? It was a little strange. and To me, it was sort of a microcosm, actually, of the Democratic Party's response to all of these controversies writ large. Like you have two, when you get accused of having a particular position, you can either defend it, right? Uh, you can clarify what it is and then defend it, or you can say this thing doesn't exist. Yeah. And Democrats generally, and not just on this issue, are just going with the this thing doesn't exist. And this was a really weird case to go with the this thing doesn't exist because uh, many Democrats have said that you know, critical race theory, theory is not being taught in schools. Just in law And schools. then I respond that, okay, the, the, what is literally, what was literally called critical race theory is not really being taught in schools, but the ideas that have in, inspired some of these more very obnoxious kind of training seminars that treat like all white people as the devil and that, that ascribe to black people characteristics that are very group thinky and just very bad 
educational seminar stuff that I think is is objectionable and does not belong in schools, doesn't belong anywhere. If you, you don't have to call that critical race theory, whatever you want to call it, fine. But if you want to say that's not critical race theory, okay. But the people saying that's not critical race theory, w- right, what they've said is that critical race theory is taught in law schools and is only about this one thing. So she was going way too far. Like, I don't believe that, that she that she barely even knows what it is and that it's never you know, inspired or informed her approach. She could have just said, yeah, it, it is this legal theory. I've been taught in it. Probably so have you, Senator Cruz, and your legal background. I think it's interesting, you know, whatever. And, uh, I, I, it, you know, maybe it's one factor among a million other things for how I look at the world and look at right, my decision yeah. making. You could say that, you know, critical race theory presents some genuine insights into how our legal system operates. It helps to explain, you know, how right. we arrived at a place where, you know, Black people are in prison at a vastly disproportionate rate. The people who helped write the First Step Act, which I believe uh, Ted Cruz voted for, were inspired in part by elements of critical race theory. We should take we should take from every different you know academic theory what we can and discard the parts right. that we find not to be useful. You could do some version, and that of would that. be the answer. I suspect she believes. Right. I don't believe that critical right. race right. theory has absolutely nothing to do. With her worldview whatsoever, that's not. And I also, I also claim. don't think so. she's some like zealot on the question uh, either. Sure, she's, I don't she's, think she's, she's probably either, looked but... at him and like, yeah, this, there's some of some of this is genuinely accurate. Right. And there are other people on the left who are like, you know, the, the problem with the problem with critical race theory is that it it centers race, whereas race was developed as a concept in the you know 17th, 18th mm-hmm. century to justify the o- oppression that was fueled by by capitalism and by the development of chattel slavery, and so. It was, it was a product of, right. so if you get rid of the product, you still have the thing that produced the product to begin with. But it is now so ingrained that it, it has to be you know, studied on its, on its own. All of those things can be true without saying, yeah, never heard of this, never really studied this thing. So it, yeah. yeah. I don't know, so I, to me, it's a, it's a frankly dishonest answer in, the, in these kinds of proceedings, which is not good. I, I mean, uh, Brett Kavanaugh was uh, in, in not even, you know, setting aside the actual accusations, that whole thing. You know, he was, he, oh, you didn't quite remember this calendar date, that kind of stuff. Right. Well, it, it, he, he was asserted oh, that he also, should practice an extreme level of honesty about those kinds of recollections. Right. So. And, and people should Google Brett Kavanaugh perjury. It's like in his circuit court yeah. uh, testimony, he straight up, and, it, and there's no question about it, straight up perjured himself. And, and, it, and it's demonstrable, uh, but th- this 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 doesn't quite this isn't quite perjury, but it's not quite yeah, I don't honesty honest. either. And it it also shows that Democrats feel like they're in retreat on this issue. Yeah, that's what it shows. <laughs> you you yeah. wouldn't you don't wouldn't even acknowledge having heard of this. When it's it was clearly developed the preparation in elite she law got. schools. Yeah, right. that's what she right. was told. Right, she was told, don't. Don't even acknowledge ever having heard of this. Yeah, don't give an inch on this. Which is right. pretty, yeah, pretty telling, like you said. Right. Um, these, uh, it actually shows you how, in a way, these hearings are not um, uh, great in terms of the public spectacle element. Like uh, Rachel Bovard was saying the other day, and I, I agree with her in theory that, yes, the, they, they should face, this is an important job, they should face intense questioning from the Senate. That's the job of the Senate. But because it's such, it's public spectacle, and, and also because the judge is not going to say anything of any interest, is not going to explain what they think about abortion or, you know, 
prayer in, in school or any, any, any issue that is consequential <laughs> right. that they might rule on, they're not going to give you any clues into their thinking. So it's kind of pointless. But the point for the senators is to grandstand and, and you know, appear to be fighting or defending, appear to be doing the thing their supporters want so that it, you know, it goes in the clip reel to be played on MSNBC or Fox or, or you know, wherever their team's viewers reside. And that's, that's the only purpose it serves. Yeah. And I think particularly after Kavanaugh was confirmed, it's going to be very difficult for any, any minority to defeat a, a nominee of a majority party because Democrats will say Kavanaugh came in here, you know, even aside from the sexual assault allegations, he came in here in, in this like spitting rage mm-hmm. that, that showed a complete lack of the kind of temperament that you want in a justice, and you guys were fine to confirm him. So therefore, it, there's very little that Democrats are going to be willing to you know, uh, reject one of their own nominees for, given that. And then once Democrats do that, say, hey, she lied about critical race theory, and uh, you know, she was bad on uh, child sex offenders, and you still voted for her, so we're still voting for our very flawed candidate. So it's going to be a tit-for-tat, yeah, and any, no way. anybody can get through it. Unless you have, unless you don't have the majority, and Democrats are not going to have the majority for a very long time, it looks nope. like. So, <laughs> nope. <laughs> this, so the the number of Supreme Court justices might just dwindle. Maybe eventually they'll get back. There to will it. never be a Supreme Court justice ever again confirmed who belongs to the opposite party of the president and the majority in the Senate. Well, ever. Never. Well, we'll have to, there, there will be a new era of politics. We don't know when that'll come, but in this the era. The post-apocalyptic right, era. Post-apocalyptic, <laughs> in this era, it probably won't happen. To the fall of the U.S. Yeah. government, maybe. So it'll be a 3-3 Supreme Court eventually. That's the best Democrats can hope for. Yeah. 3-2 majority. Oh, boy. Well, our rising panel will join us next. Stick around. At least 19 members of Congress stand to personally profit off of the war in Ukraine as a result of their stock holdings in Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. That's according to Business Insider. Raytheon and Lockheed Martin are the manufacturers of the Javelin and Stinger missiles, which Western allies are currently sending to Ukraine. Among those investing in the defense contractors is Republican Representative John Rutherford of Florida, who purchased between $1,001 and $15,000 worth of Raytheon stock on February 24th, which is the day Russia invaded Ukraine. Rutherford sits on the House Appropriations Committee and the Subcommittee for Homeland Security. Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, bought between $1,000 and $15,000 worth of stock in Lockheed Martin on February 22nd two days before Russia invaded Ukraine. On the 24th, she tweeted, quote, war is big business to our leaders, to which Representative Ilhan Omar responded, quote, add this to the list of why members of Congress should never be allowed to trade stocks. Our rising panel joins us now to weigh in. Shauna Thomas is executive director of Ultraviolet, and Denise Long is a business consultant and contributor at Newsweek. Uh, Shauna does Marjorie Taylor Greene have no shame? Like, at least a lot of these other members of Congress, when they're profiting uh, off of uh, war and, and misery and plague, at least kind of do it quietly. But she's out there buying Lockheed Martin and then, and then kind of celebrating at the uptick. No, absolutely no shame. But we already knew that about her. I mean, look, but the problem is broader than her, right? It's corruption in some cases. It's the appearance of corruption in other cases. Either way, it's a huge problem. Right? There's just no way to argue that there isn't a conflict of interest when you have a financial stake in legislation you're writing or voting on. 
And I think it's kind of insane that it's taken congresswomen like Alan Omar and Pramila Jayapal, you know, to push really, really hard to move Democratic leadership on this, which I just find disturbing in an era when public confidence in our institutions and leaders are so low. Yeah, Denise, it's it's concerning, I think, very concerning that there is sort of a you, you can imagine how there would be an incentive for lawmakers to support war if they're if they're literally lining their pockets with the profits of 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 a war going on that that creates a terrible kind of uh, encouragement or a reason other than mm. actual security concerns uh, to, to be in favor of conflict and of conflict lasting as long as possible. So, what do you make of this? Well, exactly what you said, and I think what uh, what that tweet says is take a look at the the sins of thee and not of me, right? So. I cannot imagine a space in an organization which would allow for the destruction of its home to be incentivized. And Robbie, that's exactly what this does. Uh, my question for this becomes, when we look at the institution of the federal government, uh, what are the principles that we're living by re regarding this very obvious conflict of interest? What are the mechanisms from an administrative perspective that are to oversee and prevent as well as punish uh, these types of actions? What we do know is that the federal government's budget for defense is much, much, much larger than its even budget for how it takes care of its own citizens. And this ability to benefit from that quote unquote defense might be one of those reasons that needs to be addressed. Those are the questions that need to be investigated and there need to be structures in place to upend this straight away. Yeah, and Marjorie Taylor Greene is so much fun on this one. Just want to go back to a tweet from hers on the 23rd, the day before that invasion. She, she posted, war and rumors of war is incredibly profitable and convenient. That's the day after she bought uh, the Lockheed stock. And so I guess in, in her defense, uh, I, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, <laughs> maybe this isn't a defense. I want to hear this. <laughs> I don't think like she understands that she's doing the thing that she's criticizing. Oh, oh clearly not. Like, I, like she yeah. doesn't get it. <laughs> right. I think in so defense. the other leaders. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I'm sure that that disconnect right. intellectually exists. But so, Shauna, since the only thing that seems to be able to move the needle in Washington now is cynical partisanship, could we at least be at a place where Democratic leadership sees this as an opportunity to dunk on Marjorie Taylor Greene? Because like owning your enemies is the only thing that moves. So maybe finally they say, OK, fine, we will allow this ban to move forward in the House. That, that has like 99% support publicly because it, we can then hang it around Marjorie Taylor Greene's neck. Maybe that's the thing that finally gets us moving because the Democratic leaders have now, have now agreed basically that they're going to do that. They just haven't done it. And so I think there's kind of, it seems like they're hoping that everybody just forgets. Yeah, I think that's right. It is an opportunity. Look, it, this has been a topic of conversation, again, led by progressive uh, women in Congress to really push Democratic leadership, who was hesitant at best, right, to move on this. But I think um, in the context of war, it's just particularly egregious. Um, and, you know, to the extent that they can say, look, we are not going to accept Republicans, Marjorie Taylor Greene or anybody else like her war profiteering. Um, I think, you know, could could open the door for actually, you know, for actually getting this done. Um, 
I do think that, you know, one of the things that Marjorie Taylor Greene has said is, you know, in addition, you know, it, is it not only is it big business, but it's it is a function of corruption. I think it is also an opportunity potentially to have a conversation about corporate influence on politics. So these same contractors that she invested in two days before Russia invaded Ukraine are some of the largest political donors in the United States. Right. Um, and, you know, so it's it's a it's a larger conversation than this. But I do think we've created an opportunity to at least get this done, to solve this problem, that there is no law prohibiting lawmakers from, you know, sitting on congressional committees, writing legislation or voting on bills that might affect them financially, which, again, creates these bloated, you know, defense budgets and keeps us in endless war. Yeah. And I should say that Marjorie Taylor Greene says that an advisor bought the stocks wasn't her call specifically. But uh, so take that for, for what it's worth. But uh, Denise, could this be an opportunity? Like, why wouldn't not Marjorie Taylor Greene, but other Republicans seize this opportunity to, uh, again, to own the lib, say, oh, you, you know, you, you're, you're anti-corporations, anti-big business, you're, you say you're populist, but yet the, yet your, you know, your Nancy Pelosi was, was very against doing the kind of stock bans, uh, you know, why don't you live your principles and, and you're, you're profiting and encouraging war, that kind of thing? Yeah, so I think the question becomes, you know, whose hands are dirty in this? And if I throw, if I if I point the light at you, it might turn out that you'll get to see the dirt on my hands as well. Uh, so that might be the short answer to that. I think what the American people need to do is make it abundantly clear by calling their legislators to let them know where we stand on this across the line. Uh, whether you, you know, identify, wherever you identify on the political spectrum, call your legislator however they identify on the political spectrum. and let them know how you feel about them profiting off of war um, and, the, and the effect that that has on the American people. It is our children that go into those wars. It is um, us who the refugees from those wars have to, you know, live with and live in community with every day. So we have to make it clear to our legislators that they are representatives of us and the way they are representing us right now doesn't agree with our principles. And Shauna, I'm curious if you've heard this too. Uh, I, I've heard privately from members of Congress that there's sort of a social contract, if you will, now that the, the, the House and the Senate will vote against the kind of cost of living allowance. They've been doing this for years because none of them want to vote and have a vote that says, oh, they voted to raise their own pay because that's, that's death to an angry populace at come re-election time. And the kind of contract is Look, you're going to be able to make that money back in the stock market because you're going to you're going to learn a lot through this job that you're going to then be able to trade on. And so if they that, that and that is a lot of the resistance They're like, well, wait a minute, this was the deal. Like I, I get I'm supposed to get a little of this ice cream on the side here. Have you have you heard that from, uh, you know, from people on Capitol Hill as well? I have. And it is a logical explanation for why um, Speaker Pelosi was not supportive of moving the legislation initially. It was clearly a defense of her members, right, of the people she feels like she needs to take care of. And that includes, you know, uh, making sure that they are able, apparently, to feel financially secure. Um, you know, I don't know if there was an actual, you know, deal cut um, informally or otherwise, uh, but I definitely think that they've underestimated the extent to which uh, people out in the world are paying attention to this. 
um, and how offended they are by the um, by by the fact that there is no law prohibiting this and that it it is having a huge impact on their lives and they see it and they know it. Well, Shauna and Denise, thank you so much for joining us. Good to see you. Thank you. Thanks. Up next, we have Rihanna Joy Gray joining us, and we will debate, is it time to nationalize oil? I say no, but presumably Brianna and I think Ryan say yes. So Internationalize stick, it. Stick, have stick the, around for that. The UN sees it. <laughs> The oil crisis here at home is fueling calls that maybe it's time we nationalize the industry. But what would the process of acquiring oil production from private companies look like? From implementing imminent domain, reigning in fuel industry greed, and complying with climate success, there's a lot to unpack here. Joining us now to drill down, so to speak, (laughs) on the renewed calls for nationalizing fuel is Brianna Joy Gray, co-host of the Bad Faith podcast and former Bernie Sanders press secretary. Brianna, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Robbie. All right, so have at it. What is the case for nationalizing the oil industry? So my first inclination to do this episode was last year when I remember reading articles that pointed out that for the same price that uh, the country was bailing out the airline industry, it could just buy the airline industry. And it made me think about all of these instances historically in this country where there have been bailouts, bankruptcies and the like, in which the state has come into control of these companies, most notably uh, General Motors in 2008, and then quietly just return them over to the companies without really doing what a normal acquisition would do, which is to try to return benefit from the owner, in this case, the American people. So I brought two experts on, including uh, Johanna Bozwa, who's written an extensive paper on all the different methods that one could go about doing this. And what's so fascinating to me in this process, learning more about it, is the extent to which our kind of common American conception of nationalization as this kind of kooky, despotic thing that happens elsewhere in the world is far from the truth, Not not just because we have so many models for it here in America, but because it's basically the same act acquisition model that corporate mergers and everybody else does all the time. It's just the government that's buying up majority shares, if not all of the company, and then doing uh, basically implementing policies that are in the public benefit instead of for corporate profit. So I'm behind on my podcast, but I do want to get to this episode because I'm curious about the mechanics. But give us a short version of what it would look like to nationalize kind of an international industry. These are multinational companies. You know, how do we prevent them from saying, okay, ni- nice job, you, you, like, you, you nationalized our U.S. version, which includes these four employees. Congratulations. The, our, our, we're, actually, <laughs> we're actually registered in Ireland, so you didn't nationalize the rest of it, or, what, or yeah, wherever. So, yeah. so my understanding is that at the end of the day, these companies are uh, controlled by their boards, regardless, right? And so the point of the issue would be to control for, the com- for America to buy, for the country to buy a majority stake, if not the totality of the of of the um, share ownership so that it had control over the voting rights and the activities of the country as a whole. So it wouldn't be different again from any other circumstance. And by doing so, it would be able to do things like have a wind down, if we're talking about the oil industry, where you're able to ensure a just transition for workers so that workers wouldn't bear the brunt of winding down from dirty energy policies that are killing our planet and causing so many health effects across the board. Uh, It would be uh, the corporate profits that take a hit because no longer would the priority be making sure that there is a profit, but we'll be making sure that the 
the people were taken care of. Notably, there is a historical example of this, right? The reason we're talking about this is so often when we're dealing with purely profit-driven incentives, we don't have the kind of resources distributed to communities when a company decides that there's not going to be sufficient prof uh, profit for the top. So most notably and um, most kind of gloriously in the public imagination is the Tennessee Valley Authority, which was a part of the country in the early middle part of the century that simply wasn't being served by the electric uh, by the private power industry that no one wanted to go there it was considered to be too too rural too poor it just wasn't the juice wasn't worth the squeeze and so we had a state-run energy facility which not only was incredibly effective in delivering power to millions of underserved americans it actually turned a profit and continues to turn a profit to this day and the argument that's being made on the show was that by heralding these examples pointing to other examples like the ownership of GM in 2008, we can start to make Americans more aware of the fact that in countries all over the world, they have a lot of success from having at least partial ownership of various industries. For example, in sort of several Scandinavian countries that Matt Brunig pointed to, the other guest on my show from the People Policy Project, um, there is majority ownership in those kind of extremely resource-rich industries and those resource-rich countries that nurse the benefit of the populations there. Mm. Yeah, and not to interrupt you, but yes, the, in 1964, Barry Goldwater, as I'm sure you know, he was undone by his attacks on the Tennessee Valley Authority. Like that a communist right. plot. Yes, his, <laughs> Robbie's hero, Barry Goldwater, uh, he, he took the sword to that windmill, the TVA windmill, and the, the windmill won. And it, it heavily contributed to him getting annihilated. And in Alaska, the, the, the permanent fund there is extremely popular as well. What do you think, Rob? Are you sold? <laughs> far, far from it, I have to say. I'm very nervous about the government running industries. I don't know that our government or any government, but especially our government, if, if the clowns is in Saudi very Arabia, competent. If, if Saudi Arabia can run an oil company, I think we could pull it off. What do you I'm think? I'm not sure we could pull it off. I'm, well, Robbie, I mean, Robbie's making an interesting point here. You know, I think that people who have some skepticism of the government because of some demonstrated inefficiencies aren't wrong to point that out. And I think that liberals and leftists need to be honest about their reality. But that reality was caused by years of Republicans very intentionally taking a hatchet to the um, internal mechanisms of state, defunding programs, cutting down on staff, and making it difficult for the government to do anything internal so that it has to externalize and and, and basically send all of our tax dollars out to government contracts to people who also don't always do the best job, right? I've talked to colleagues here in D.C. who are very frustrated running their departments, even within the Biden administration, because there's just not very much uh, grist internally for them to work with. So we do have to go about also rehabilitating our government's ability to do things at the same time that we pursue some of these kinds of programs. But the relying on the planned obsolescence that Republicans to put, have put in place isn't an excuse, nor is ignoring all of the inefficiencies and the problems that come from private industry all the time. Conservatives like to say this thing sometimes, which is that, you know, democracy isn't the best system, but it's better than all the other systems or something to that effect. Well, I would say the same thing for private industry. Certainly there are legitimate criticisms to be made of the way the government can operate, but unlike private industry, it is ostensibly accountable through democratic means. And has as its sole purpose, its sole stated purpose, delivering for the people in a way that private industry absolutely does not have. As well, right. Private industry is trying to make profits. I agree. But the profit incentive can be, it doesn't, right, it doesn't serve all our interests. It doesn't necessarily do anything about inequality or other social problems we want to correct, but it does, does create wealth 
that can be then be put to good use. It creates greater efficiencies absent the profit motivation. I mean, look, the airline industry actually is, is one of the more frightening, I think, examples against the kind of thing um, you're talking. I mean, already the influence of government on the airline industry has made it miserable, has made it more miserable to fly over the past several decades. Like if they if they ran the whole thing and, and, and deregulating the airline industry, right, was a, actually a huge innovation that took place under Jimmy Carter that made like flight better and accessible to more people uh, for the first time ever. And now we've, we've undone a lot of that by having just utterly ridiculous, farcical government regulation over uh, air travel that I, I, I wouldn't, now I wouldn't bail them out either. And, uh, you know, a lot, if you're saying that, well, why we bail, if we bail them out, shouldn't the government just run it? Well, they shouldn't bail them out would be my answer to a lot of these things, especially GM. Let them go broke. I don't care about them. Yeah, this is, the this is why, this is why I cannot be elected governor yes. of Michigan or president, but oh well. Look, there already is a lot of corporate welfare. This is the argument that people like Bernie Sanders yeah, make. Yeah, get all rid the of time. it. Get rid of it. And, it. and in any other instance, if there was going to be a bailout like this, if another corporation were going to acquire a different corporation with the idea of saving it, there would be an expectation that there would be benefits for corporation, the savior corporation's shareholders. The shareholders that exist in the form of the American people, when we use our tax taxpayer dollars to bail out these industries. There's never any expectation of a return on the investment. So this is a conversation about how to go about getting that. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Brianna, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ryan. And we'll have more rising right after this. Bad news for Mo Brooks, who's running for the Alabama Senate seat in the Republican primary, who was endorsed by Trump. Until now, he has been unendorsed by the former president. Um, This is a guy who was um, among the leading organizers of January 6th protests. Like, worked with the Stop the Steal protest. Like, he he was the guy, like, among among a handful of them. If he's not enough uh, for Trump, it's, then we are moving into very strange he territory. Has, unfortunately, according to Trump, Mo Brooks is woke, has gone woke. I, I, love, yeah. his de- I love his definition of woke. going to read you well, part we of this. We've got a trigger warning for people who can't, yes. can't hear things without immediately <laughs> believing them. Our, our, in our, our YouTube masters, in their infinite wisdom, would like us to make sure we communicate to you. We do not believe the stolen election claim is false. Uh, we are going to repeat it now because I'm going to quote from former President Trump making that claim, which is false, so there's no confusion and no one gets any kind of suspension or any kind of his claim bad is, thing. His claim is newsworthy because it is driving his decision to unendorse right. Mo Brooks. Right. Everybody cool? Everybody got it? Everybody, we can proceed safely now? <laughs> okay. Jesus Christ. Mo, <laughs> Mo Brooks of Alabama made a horrible mistake recently when he went woke, started referring to the 2020 presidential election scam. Put that behind you, put that behind you, despite the fact that the election was rife with fraud and irregularities. Not true. Which it was not. That is what (laughs) what Trump has claimed. So he has unendorsed him. And he says, I I don't think the great people of Alabama will disagree with me. Election fraud must be captured and stopped. Captured and stopped. Not all people in Alabama are great, just to be factual (laughs) and clear. Won't have a country anymore. I will be making a new endorsement in the near future. So this is, it's like the American Idol kind of. Oh, he loves to dangle. Like, dangle who, who's going to get the rose? He, this is his favorite thing to do. Is he going to show up to this event, or is he not going to mm-hmm. show up to this event? Will he debate? Will he not debate? Who's he going to endorse? Maybe I will. He's even teased that he's going to endorse Greitens just because he loves the suspense. Right. In, Didn't he only endorse Lisa, Lisa Murkowski on the 
like stipulation that she doesn't do anything to annoy him or something. What, Did he endorse her? I think he said, I am, I'm giving a conditional endorsement <laughs> if she... Um, look, it was, it was funny. Trump in, I, so he endorsed he, her, but it was like conditional on... Oh, no, he endorsed her challenger. Uh, <laughs> yes, he hates Lisa Murkowski. But it came with a it came with a catch. No, it came with a catch that the the challenger did not um, what it, is null and void if if he endorses. Yeah, if he endorses. Okay, now this is the governor. The he, his governor choice he endorsed oh, I see. is contingent on the governor not endorsing Lisa, Lisa Murkowski. Murkowski. Yeah. That's what it was. It's pretty the, funny. The transitive property of cancellation. Oh, that's pretty funny. Yeah. But yeah, Mo, Mo Brooks, what like he was communicating with the January sixth folks. He it's was never enough for Trump. He helped. He helped organize the rally. He spoke at the rally. Uh, he he has he led. You know he he has pushed for all of these different you know reevaluations and studies and commissions and audits. He has pushed. He's pushed Trump's bogus claims that enough. the election was stolen to the hilt until. Finally, apparently, according to Trump, uh, he his, said we need to move on. From we need to move on from this. It's, it's 2022, and this was in 2020, and it makes us look like fools to keep whining about this, especially when they're staring at if they don't do anything wrong, taking over the House and the Senate. Right. And so they're like, let's just not let's just not continue. Maybe to Mo sound Brooks like fools. was down. I don't, is he he was not looking good. And Trump saw this as an opportunity to dump an endorsement because Trump hates to endorse someone that then loses because he wants to still. There's that. He has this pretension to power that his endorsement carries so much weight. So he doesn't want the people he endorse. To not right. And, and he loves to take fake credit for it. He's like right. he, Mitch McConnell won in Kentucky because of Trump's endorsement. Right. Like Mitch McConnell won in Kentucky because it's, it's Kentucky and he was running against Amy McGrath. So, yeah. But, yes, Trump and Trump loves to point to when when he endorsed and where their where their numbers went. Like yeah. they jumped out to a 44 point lead because I endorsed him. Uh, so the, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the, the Greitens situation. So this is the the uh, Republican uh, seeking the Republican nomination for Senate in Missouri. And we talked about this on the show the other day, but this guy is very controversial, resigned as governor, uh, is in a kind of horrific custody dispute, uh, is, is accused of, of all this really bad stuff. Josh Hawley has said he should not be in the race, who prosecuted him when he was attorney general, yeah. has called on him to drop out of the race and has endorsed someone else. So if, if Greitens uh, prevails, it's going to be really embarrassing. And, and I, Trump, I think, my understanding is feels some... Just wants yeah. to get involved. Well, also, your instinct in Alabama was was correct. So he, Brooks is down at fourteen percent in the latest poll, and and has he's, woke. he's he's Sad. in third, third Hate place. Hate to see it. You've got yes, <laughs> and you've got this Mike Durant, um, who's famous as the like Black Hawk Down guy. Oh, you, you know, how are you going to compete with that? Can't. And so like the poll has him up at thirty four percent, and then kind of uh, a kind of businesswoman, Katie Britt. At 28%. So it's kind of like a two person race, a Black Hawk Down person against a Republican business person, with then Mo Brooks flailing like badly in third place. That's hugely embarrassing for Trump because if he's lost his cachet in Alabama, that really undermines the perception of his, his power. So he had to find some reason to uh, unendorse the woke Mo Brooks. 
so woke. It, it must be, it must sting to get called woke if you're Mo Brooks. It must sting. <laughs> Trump has no loyalty, and it's funny that he yes. commands perfect loyalty, but there's no reason he won't right. turn on the you. The most disloyal <laughs> really person probably on the planet. Absolutely. <laughs> That's Michael Cohen with the prison. Our, our, our likely next Republican uh, nominee for president and very conceivably our president again in the future. Could be. But this suggestion that his, his grasp on the party is much more tenuous than people think. We'll have to see if, it's, if and when it's really put to the test. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. But his, just again. Did, he lost. He lost. Square. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody satisfied now? We can move along. I think we're good. All right. We'll have more rising after this. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, what is going on with this war in Ukraine? It should have been over by now through negotiations. Putin's demands have been mostly straightforward, and many think they're doable, and some even believe them to be fairly reasonable. Most importantly, he hasn't changed them since this war began. He's consistently told the various leaders in China, France, Israel, Turkey, and others what he wants, and the goalpost hasn't moved. His main demand is for Ukraine to change its constitution from how it's currently written, asserting its desire to join NATO, to instead stating it will never join. Zelensky has already conceded that Ukraine will not join NATO, but Putin wants it in the constitution. He wants Ukraine to undergo a disarmament process, which Russia is currently doing violently, but he requests that they instead undergo the destruction of the weapons themselves. He wants protection for the Russian language in Ukraine. In certain parts of the country, the Russian language has been forbidden in the public sector, even in areas where the majority of the residents speak Russian as their primary language. Putin also says he wants denazification, and what that means is removing from the government and the military the various openly ultra-nationalist people, organizations, and battalions. Some people point to Zelensky being Jewish, and thus the idea there are Nazis supported by the Ukrainian government is preposterous. But these Nazis don't target Jews. They target anyone who isn't Ukrainian. They are ultra-nationalist, and the people most often caught in their crosshairs are Romans and Russians. They have been supported by the West and Ukraine's government since 2014, and Putin wants them gone. Putin also wants Crimea declared as part of Russia. Now, this is a tougher sell for most people because they view it as a symbol of Russian expansion. But many of us know the Crimean people never fought back against Russia in 2014 because most of them actually welcomed being made part of the country. The region was given to Ukraine in the 50s without the consultation of the people living there. The people overwhelmingly declared their desire to rejoin Russia and even celebrated their arrival. The Donbass region is where things get more complicated. Putin demands the region be declared its own independent nation, but the question is how much of the region? Some of the Donbass hasn't even been under the control of Ukraine since 2014. The people in that area celebrated Russia's arrival and viewed them as liberators. Many of them have fled into Russia to escape the war. But the full territory of the Donbass is larger than what has been under rebel control. And that's the area, including Maripol, which will be a sticking point for the two countries. But everything else is fairly reasonable. Zelensky could have conceded some of these things to at least get to a ceasefire while they figure out the Donbass region. So why isn't Zelensky doing it? Why is the U.S. supplying Ukraine with more weapons and encouraging Zelensky to fight rather than seek peace? The response from the West and Zelensky has been to just condemn the invasion and demand Russia leave. That might be right, but it's naive. And in the meantime, people are getting killed. 
Like it or not, a negotiation has to be had. And this negotiation in particular seems fairly straightforward. At least that's what reasonable people think. But it turns out the people who have the power to influence Zelensky maybe aren't trying to be reasonable. Maybe they have no desire to reach a peace agreement in Ukraine. Maybe they're more interested in bleeding Putin out until his government is ousted. In fact, they've pretty much said as much. In a recent New York Times article published on Saturday, this article detailed the endless back and forth conversations the Pentagon and the White House have been having over which weapons they could supply Ukraine, who could supply them, how they could be supplied, what they can get away with without pissing Putin off too much. This is what the officials in our government spend their time talking about rather than how to convince Ukraine and Russia into a peaceful coexistence. In his opinion piece for Bloomberg, Neil Ferguson cited a senior administration official who at a private event, event earlier this month stated, the only end game now is the end of the Putin regime. Until then, all the time Putin stays, Russia will be a pariah state that will never be welcomed back into the community of nations. China has made a huge error in thinking Putin will get away with it. Seeing Russia get cut off will not look like a good vector, and they'll have to reevaluate the Shino-Russia axis. All this is to say that democracy and the West may look back on this as a pivotal strengthening moment, unquote. So I'd like to know when in the past 70 years since World War II, the U.S. has strengthened democracy and bettered the lives of people by engaging in proxy wars. When have any of them been pivotal strengthening moments for the West? Hillary Clinton also alluded to this bleed them out strategy last month while on MSNBC. But remember, uh, the Russians invaded Afghanistan uh, back uh, in 1980. And uh, although no country uh, went in, uh, they certainly had a lot of countries uh, supplying uh, arms and advice and even some advisors uh, to those who were recruited to fight Russia. It didn't end well for the Russians. Uh, there were other uh, unintended consequences, as we know. But the fact is that a very motivated and then uh, funded and armed uh, insurgency uh, basically drove the Russians out of Afghanistan. Um, obviously, the similarities are, are not uh, ones that you should uh, bank on because uh, the terrain, the development uh, in urban areas, et cetera, is so different. But I think that is the model that people are now uh, looking toward. And if there can be sufficient uh, armaments that get in, and they should be able to get in along some of uh, uh, the borders uh, between other nations and Ukraine, uh, and keep the Ukrainian, uh, both their military and their citizen uh, volunteer soldiers supplied, uh, that can continue to stymie Russia. Now, let's be you know, clear that Russia has overwhelming uh, military force. Uh, but, of course, they did in Afghanistan as well. Mm. Uh, they also brought a lot of uh, air power to Syria. It has—it took years to finally uh, defeat Syria. Uh, in terms of the insurgencies, the democratic forces, as well as others who battled the Russians, the Syrians and the Iranians. Um, so if you're fighting for your homeland, you're fighting for your family, you're fighting for your ideals, that's far more powerful than sending in these poor young Russian soldiers who didn't even know where they were going until they crossed the border and People were screaming at them, and they realized they were in Ukraine. So I, I think we have to watch this carefully. 
we have to provide sufficient uh, military armaments for the Ukraine uh, military and volunteers. And we have to keep tightening the screws. Keep tightening the screws, she says. Keep them supplied, according to the Times. That's exactly what the administration is doing. What's interesting is Biden seems hesitant to do this, but Hillary clearly isn't. With Biden's declining faculties, many of us have wondered who behind the scenes is really running things. I don't know. Maybe it's Hillary Clinton calling the shots. It wouldn't surprise me. She certainly has publicly hated Putin since at least 2008, obviously more so after 2016. Many believe she was robbed of her turn to be president and would love to get revenge. So maybe she's pulling an Edith Wilson or a Nancy Reagan. Wouldn't be the first time we had a secret president. But that's pure speculation. Hillary isn't wrong about people fighting for their homeland fiercely, but many of these fighters are not volunteers. They're conscripted. Unlike Afghanistan, many Ukrainians are ethnic Russians. Ukraine was part of the USSR, and it does sit right up on Russia's border. So these factors make Russia less likely to give up like they did in Afghanistan. Also, with all of the immense propaganda on both sides, it's nearly impossible to know how well either side is really doing. One thing we do know is very few people in our government benefit from a peace agreement between, being reached between Ukraine and Russia. Hillary Clinton could finally be getting her revenge on Putin for what she perceives as, perceives as him costing her the presidency. The military-industrial complex is happy to engage in another proxy war that requires an endless profitable stream of American-made weapons being shipped abroad without costing American lives. Even Biden gets to look like a winner for seemingly pushing back against escalating the war, but escalating to full-on NATO or U.S. engagement probably wasn't in the game plan of any of the actual decision makers anyway. They want a proxy war, and they're getting a proxy war. But the more aware of this we are as the American people, the more we can push back on our leaders and demand they behave like the nation we think we are, or at least we want to be. People are sick of endless aggression, regime changes, and proxy wars. People want us to focus on building our own country and investing in our own people. People are tired of us being the world police, providing military defense to an ever-growing list of nations most people have never even heard of. If we must be involved, people want us to be peacemakers and solve world crisis rather than create them. Yet here we are pushing a nation toward destruction on our behalf because we'd love nothing more but to see Putin bled dry. So I would love to see us start to negotiate some peace, but it doesn't sound like from any of the reports going on in the administration that they're actually even discussing that as much. I mean, I hear some reports like, well, maybe we'll start to. But at this point, they're like, which weapons? You know, and it's like, OK, we can't give planes, but let's do drones. You know, I mean, they're they're kind of deciding which weapons are we going to supply Ukraine in this rather than encouraging a negotiation between the two. Russia isn't just going to leave on their own. Yeah, I, I'm happy to see it. Lead them dry. <laughs> Personally, I don't care. I, I think uh, I think the, the collapse of the Putin regime would be a, a, a positive development for humanity. Obviously, we can't directly go to war with them or do anything to directly cause that, nor should we. It's dangerous and reckless. But uh, Although, Putin could could prevent this outcome at any time by ending this war and, and which he should do. And I hope he does do. But he should if he, he you know putting the pressure that the more disastrously disastrously this goes the more likely his regime is to collapse seems like that's a fine possibility to leave out there the the, the problem is that the structures in uh russia that created putin would still be there so sure. you'd get another putin type figure. right you could get a more incompetent less autocratic less tyrannical person maybe so but i mean, I mean when when have there been just a real quick question robbie when 
have we had a regime change or a toppling of a government that actually resulted in a positive? The fall of the Soviet Union was a positive for a little while before Putin came back mm. to power. I would say it was a positive. Mm. So I, think the, I think the gradual trajectory of Chinese government from, you know, up until recently was positive from Mao to Deng Xiaoping, et cetera, and then it's sadly reversed itself. But some governments do get better, right? Sometimes better people come to power right. after. But I mean, I agree with you that we those, should, it is not worth the U.S. government intervening directly or, or, I mean, I agree with you generally about proxy wars. Just the, the difference with this one is that this is a war that Russia has started. So... I, I think its government should should suffer consequences. Again, if they don't want to suffer those, the ideal is them not suffering those consequences by ending the war. But that should that should be on them to do that. Right, and that's to, my only. I guess to, that's where we depart. I, In general, I agree that I don't want regime change. I don't want to proactively do regime change. But it doesn't. It doesn't seem to me like we're the we're, we're the reacting party, not the causal force of this conflict. Right. And two two points on that. One. One, I, I mean, I cover the White House, and so I can, I can say, for what it's worth, that based on my reporting, there's utterly zero evidence that Hillary Clinton is secretly running this White House. I don't, I don't think she has very much influence at all. Like I, I think, but now, I think you're right that there are factions within the U.S. national security state that are— They want revenge on her behalf. I, maybe, that, I, I believe. No, and, I mean, it's and just, that, there's and, continuity in and who that, runs the— Right, the, and that have a geopolitical strategy— yeah that is happy to drain Russia of yeah. power. And, and if it comes at the expense of Ukraine, they're okay doing that. I, so I, I do think that that is a faction that exists and that is one that needs to be pushed back on and that there, there do, does need to be more focus on negotiating an end to this war as soon as possible rather than uh, prolonging it just for the sake of, of bleeding Russia dry. Now, I, I, but I do think it's naive to, to just say that because Putin has said that these are the conditions under which he would end the war tomorrow or immediately, that therefore he's telling the truth. There's nothing special about Putin as a politician or as a world leader that makes him honest and all other politicians uh, you need to take with a grain of salt. You need to take what Putin says with a huge grain of salt. Right. He started this, he said for months that the U.S. was lying that he had any plans of invading. That, that, those were his words. He said, I'm not invading. This is just a troop exercise. Why are you guys all freaking out? This is crazy. We're not, we're not invading Ukraine. He said that up until the minute there were troops in, in Ukraine. Right. Uh, and he was still saying that he wasn't going to invade Ukraine. We were in the difficult position of, uh, of not trusting Putin, obviously, but also not trusting our right. U.S. intelligence officials. Right. <laughs> Who are you supposed to try? We have no idea whether this invasion is going to happen or right. not. So he flat out lied about whether or not he had any intention of invading Ukraine. So why should we believe him now that if, if Zelensky would accept these XYZ con uh, conditions, that he would immediately tomorrow, you know, leave Ukraine. Right. Well, I mean, uh, right. We, we do have to take him for, uh, you know, we have to, we, we can't just believe it, but we also just can't not believe it. We have to try. So we can't just say, well, no, we just think you're lying. And so we're not going to even try. You have to try first. And then if he breaks those or, or moves the goalpost, then he does answer to a lot of the other world leaders who have not condemned Russia. Plenty of them have not. So this whole thinking that the world is against Russia is false. Uh, actually, most of the big, a lot of the big powers, I mean, minus the West, it, they're not saying anything. Um, and but he's so he's been telling those countries that have been basically friendly with Russia. This is my this is what I'm doing. So if he changes that 
after, let's say, Zelensky were to come to the table, then that would be one thing. But we have to at least try. Um, on the other points, you know, Hillary Clinton. So, you know, yeah, I, I don't really know. You know, like I said, it's just speculation. But what I will say that makes me more suspicious is that even when Obama was attempting his reset policy with Russia, Hillary Clinton was actively undermining that on a That's regular true. basis. Um, yeah. So th this is really her idea. This is not what others in the Obama administration. I don't even think Biden really wants to do this from the things he says. So he'll, this was this was mostly Hillary, who's always wanted Putin gone. She's been pointing there. You know, she's been having him in her crosshairs for a really long time. And that's what's upset Putin so much about Hillary Clinton. That's why he doesn't like her. Why she is like that towards him is more of a mystery. I'm not really quite sure where I can trace that back to. But um, also one other point about Putin and him saying he wasn't going to invade. I haven't. So I've actually tried to look into that more on his direct quotes about that. I don't know what I've heard, like back in December, for example, when he was pressed by foreign, uh, a foreign reporter um, on whether or not he was going to invade. When you actually listen to him speak for himself, he doesn't say he wasn't going to. He kind of says, you've left. What do you, I'm not going to say anything. He, did, he, he literally told her, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm not going to say no, that I'm not going to invade. Because she was like, well, promise us you're not going to. And he was like, I'm not going to say that. So I actually think. He might have said things like when they say, oh, what are you going to do? What are you doing over there? He might have said, well, I'm just doing troop exercises, but never really denied the fact that he was intending to invade. So I'm not really certain. So, you know, on that front, I will say the direct quotes I've seen from him, he clearly seemed es his agitation was escal escalating. And maybe had I even paid attention yeah. to what he was actually saying rather than believing, you know, just kind of reading reports, had I actually taken the time to listen to him then I would have maybe been more like, yeah, I think maybe he might be on the brink of invasion. Yeah. Well, he was, I mean, he was consistently claiming that the U.S. was was wrong about his intentions. Like that, that was his that was the impression that he was giving to the entire world, that it was impression. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But the, the the words when you listen to the actual yeah. words, I think he was. I don't see why he gets gotta, so much extra benefit of that. Yeah. OK, we got to leave yeah. it there. Uh, thank you, Kim. And we'll have more rising right after this. The Biden administration has, quote, run out of money and cannot ensure every American can get a second jab. So th there, there was money that was put into the uh, recent spending package that, uh, the that was stripped out at the last minute. There was some kerfuffle with uh, House Democrats. And so as a result, they, you know, their ability to fund these fourth shots is kind of gone. Uh, you could not convince me. I don't know what you think about this, Kim. You could not convince me there isn't enough money. How was the rest of the money misspent? The, the gazillions of, of COVID-related dollars. The government says, no, we just don't have, don't, don't have the money. Come on. They could certainly start to maybe siphon some of the profits off from these companies that made a fortune off of human misery. I mean, that's one do idea. They could do they could do that and they could also call it a national security situation and take it from the Pentagon and just have to go just go have the Pentagon, you know, uh, by the fourth doses. Uh -oh. Well, White House aides have apparently been on Capitol Hill asking members of Congress for a twenty two point five billion dollar cash infusion to the administration's pandemic assistance coffers. Biden, however, does not want to see other social spending cut in order to pay for it something members of the GOP say is necessary to get their sign-off. 
Hmm. Well, also, um, we've got some really ardent supporters of COVID lockdowns. If you remember Dr. Lena Wen, she's even saying, well, maybe we should just kind of let up a bit now that we've got this new BA2 subvariant coming around. She tweeted out, look at this. For those who don't agree that the vaccinated can return to pre-pandemic normal, I ask, what should we all do? Perpetual masking, forever not dining out, avoiding large weddings and indoor gatherings. Virtually everything has risk and zero COVID is not a viable strategy. My gosh, this woman, I swear, no, you know, I you agree cannot with all even. That, right? No, I agree with that, but she no. was one of the worst. Yes. She was the one her, that was her like... Her character arc from, But better, better yeah. to flip-flop and flip the True. right way. I, I, we, we should reward <laughs> our enemy. Yes, all praise Dr. Wen. That, no, I reward <laughs> the enemy when they start sounding like you. Uh, shame people who move away from your position. I... It's, it's why she and she's going really hard at that. I saw her responding to some person who was like, no, what about the immunocompromised? What about the elderly and 95s forever? And her just being like, no, which is great. And Democrats have I've seen Democrats attacking her on Twitter. They were blaming her for the covid money not going through, saying, see, because you undermined the, the public's <laughs> like, concern about the pandemic. As a result, now Democrats took this took this money. Do you think out, so Dr. Wen was you. was like murdered and replaced by a clone <laughs> or something? did she get a, she got like uh, Avril Lavigne or something? There's a conspiracy theory that Avril aliens, Lavigne Robbie, was replaced. aliens have come down okay. and they have invaded her body. OK. Okay, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. That's right. It's an interesting question. I I mean, I mean, she says that she was right then and is right now. I think she saw some. I, I, you one gets the feeling there are these behind closed door meetings between members of Team Blue, and they all got these, you know, polling results at the same time where they go, "Wow, we're going to lose everywhere if we cling this fervently to masking toddlers and." Lockdowns, right. etc., and then they all changed course. Right. And who has credibility among Team Blue? And right. she's, she's she does. Hi- highest yes. among them. Yes. And so get her out there. Get get the Atlantic out mm-hmm. there. Get like get that kind of network of get NPR out there. Speaking. Uh-huh. What I don't of understand, the- though. Oh, go. go no, ahead. go ahead. Well, you know what I don't understand is so they're they're continuing to to push this fourth dose. They want money for the fourth dose. But the reason why these companies even did mRNAs to begin with was because they said, oh, this is so, you know, this is a groundbreaking technology that we'd be able to, as soon as we have a sequence, we could then sequence it for whatever virus almost overnight. Yet we don't have a shot for the actual variant that's that's spreading around. And we know that, especially now with this new variant, the vaccine that's currently out there doesn't stop the spread at all with that thing. So it really didn't even stop it with Omicron. So what what is the, the I mean, why are they not at least trying to get a new vaccine out quickly like they do with the flu every year? Seems like that would be the new norm going forward is that they would manufacture a new vaccine for the new variant. And then people could go and decide if they want to go get that shot or not. Why are they not doing that? And then the, the government just clearly just has moved on from one crisis to the next. So they're kind of like, OK, yeah, we're, they, we've moved I mean, on. They, to keep, they keep saying that you're, you know, they keep saying they're going to do that, but then they don't. It's it's an interesting, weird Situation. It's like, why, why, yeah. why do an alpha vaccine at this Still, point when you're right. like five variations right. away from it? Right. Like do the do the one that tweak it, and I guess they'd have. I, I don't know. They have to go through a whole approval process. There is some question whether or not they can rush that because if it's just a tweak, the way they rush it for the flu vaccine, they don't they don't require like a three year approval process right. for every flu vaccine. Like every season, they just tweak it. 
And apparently don't they the, tweak it between one? I don't know. This I could be totally wrong. I, my understanding is that there's basically two that they alter. Oh, that they switch back and yeah, forth. And that's my maybe. understanding of the flu bag. So I think they, they already have them, and they just go, this year they go with this one, and this year they go with this one, know. to mm. try to guess. Oh, I don't know. And, I mean, you see how well it works, right? It, it, it works sort of. It doesn't... They kind of blew it this year, I heard. Yeah. Maybe they... Yeah. Well, well the flu itself, you know, has been so far... Was actually crushed. By our right. by our mitigation Lockdown, efforts, which were not work. at all, they did <laughs> not uh, work to to contain the spread of COVID or entirely. I mean, they did you know discuss how much of effect they had, but they were they were totally totally enough to just nuke the flu, yeah. which shows you how much more contagious. Uh, yeah. uh, COVID, well, even in even in the alpha strain, and especially now, than flu. is than flu. It's yeah. it's so much more contagious. Although they they're, they're not one hundred percent certain about that. And one other theory on that is that the flu was out compete that the the coronavirus out competed the flu. So you know, a you person is going to get in. Like if you're being if your body is confronted with two different viruses, there's a stronger virus that's going to get you. So the other one just kind of can't really infect anyone. So it's just, you know, that, the, that the co- COVID created some immunity for. No, no, I think no, no immunity. That, that COVID like like you're, you're being Eat attacked him. by two things at the yeah. same time and COVID like <laughs> knifes the other stronger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was, it's like which one got to the finish line first. It's like mm-hmm. COVID got into your system before the flu could get into your system. Yeah. And so um, it kind of outcompeted COVID. So that is one theory as or, well. Oh, oh, or right. Or everyone who was capable of succumbing to the flu, they would have succumbed to COVID more rapidly, maybe. It's it was also that, yeah. Possible. So, yeah. Mm. Well, meanwhile, across the Atlantic, there's an Italian study on mitigating the spread of COVID in schools that found the efficient ventilation systems can cut transmission actually by over 80%. The research oh, was conducted you know? <laughs> in over 10,000 Italian schools between September 2021 and January of this year. So obviously, I'd have you to know, look at that study more closely because that seems well, pretty high. What's what's really frustrating about this is that China, when they when the virus first came around, you know, and, and here in the West, they were like, go inside, lock down. And here in California, they were like, don't go to the beach. You know, they're putting sand in the skate park so kids wouldn't go outside and skateboard. So in China, the, they focused on ventilation. I mean, they, they said to all of the buildings, turn on, open up the windows, make sure that the ventilation is not circulating, but instead coming from the outside you know, air can, you know, coming in from outside the entire time. Um, I mean, they just, for all of their big buildings, they focused on ventilation. So maybe right. there's something to it because they didn't get that much of the virus. Oh, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think there's something to it for sure, that the, the better ventilation, and that, that's what they were saying with schools. Like, if you're going to reopen the schools, they get, get better ventilation going. They, they, they basically failed for the most part right. to do that. But, you know, it, we, we know that being outdoors is you know, help, helps prevent yeah. the spread of it. That one is, and if you that can has recreate, held up. If you can the recreate whole, the yeah. outdoor environment indoors, and right. it would also probably be healthier. So that's one of those and mitigation strategies that's generally healthier as well. Unless, unless you're was, sucking in a lot of uh, yeah. you know, poisonous, polluted air in like Detroit. Yeah, I mean, I know we saw house. a lot of like images of China locking people in with padlocks, which was very bizarre. But I will say when you did, when you, if you look at how they did combat it in that very beginning, they literally focused on ventilation. That was their number one. They were like, ventilate, ventilate, ventilate. Yeah. So why did we not do that? You know, why we, we're still not really talking about the, Just now we're reading the news. Oh, hey, ventilation. We, had, uh, <laughs> we, it down. we sent the Grim, Grim Reaper to the beach right. to keep people shut up. Oh, in my homes. gosh. Yeah. Uh, ventilation is good. Tomorrow on Rising, Kim will be out, but Ryan and I will be back with another great show. And fan favorite Emily Jashinsky will help us sort through some of the news of the day. You won't want to miss that. 
Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Also, it's Ryan's birthday. <laughs> we have a we video for forget. you, Ryan. We did not forget, mm-hmm. Ryan. Yeah, look at this. Look at this video we've got for you. In honor of today, Rusty and I are going to finally check out fish. Happy birthday, Ryan. <laughs> hey, Ryan. How you doing? Just want to wish you a happy birthday and many, many more. Have a good one. Hey there. I just want to wish a very happy birthday to the most knowledgeable, psychedelic bike riding host that I know. Happy birthday, Ryan. Good morning, Ryan. I just wanted to wish you a happy... Fish is coming back on. I hope you have a happy, happy birthday. Happy birthday, Ryan. Like you. So how old are you, Ryan? I am 44 years young. thought you were going to say 76. 22. In spirit, I'm uh, He feels 76 today because he forgot his glasses yes. and yeah, cannot see yeah. that. And we have moved this. I'm being uh, told Kim is here, yeah. but I can't. I have no evidence. Yeah, but you can't so. see me. Yeah. <laughs> you can just hear my voice. But just so everybody knows, that was our. Uh, that was the, the everybody that works on Rising. At least most everybody. I don't. I don't know if we got everybody in that video, but that was um, the behind-the-scenes glimpse of the crew that makes the magic happen. So producers, camera. Uh, directors, all of those great people that make this show the amazing show that it is. No, no Reggie this week. No Reggie this week no, who's no. out on think his, right. his daughter's getting married. Congratulations to yeah. her and yeah. to him. Yes. Uh, but that was very sweet of you guys. Thank you. Yeah. It is great. I, I watched, uh, I, well, I, my wife wanted to see the clip of us all fighting yesterday for Kim's Radar. Uh-huh. So I put, it, <laughs> I put it up. I actually put it on the TV, uh, like YouTube, but on the actual TV, which I usually just kind of watch it on my screen. I'm like, this looks pretty good on the on the on the television. So, so we have a thanks to our wonderful staff for uh, making us look. They have their work cut out for them. Yes, they do. Yeah. Yes, they do. All right. All right well, you have we'll to have... sing it, Robbie. No, you have to sing Happy Birthday before we go. I do. Just... I. <laughs> yeah. More rising after this. <laughs> cut. 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 <laughs> <laughs>